Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Horace Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. Today we are going to be talking about the tragic Starved Rock murders. Really quickly before we get into the story, Mindy's had an insane last month with work. Um, So I volunteered to write this story because I used to go hiking at Starved Rock all the time. It's in... North Central Illinois. I love it. It's beautiful. But Mindy knows nothing about this story. So she is going to be just like completely, hopefully enthralled by the story because it is a doozy. Um, Yeah. Once I started researching this, I went down so many rabbit holes (laughs) and it is way more involved than I ever thought it would be. But it's a fascinating story with lots of twists and turns. And so hopefully um, all of you will be just as enthralled as I predict Mindy will be. I'm so excited. Sharon's going to tell me a story. (laughs) Once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful place called Starved Rock. Um, All right, Mindy, are you ready to get into this story? I'm ready. Lay it on me. Let's get into it. All right, so... Starved Rock is a beautiful state park in North Central Illinois that I've been to many, many times throughout my life. As I said, it's a wonderful place to go hiking. It's incredibly scenic. I actually used to live only about 30 minutes away from the area and used to go hiking there at least once a month. And I had always heard of the Starved Rock murders. They would even sell books about it at the gift shop at the lodge. Um, But I never really looked into the murders that took place there. So I decided to research the story because for some reason it came up and I was like, huh, I really don't know anything about this. Let's talk about it on the pod. So (laughs) I was surprised to learn that the story is actually still ongoing to this day, 61 years after the murders took place. And there is going to be new events surrounding this story taking place next month. And we will get into all of that. Whoa. Yes, please. So for this very reason, though, we want to be extremely respectful of everyone that's involved in the story because it is still ongoing. I'm going to try and cover as many of the details in the case as I can. But like most true crime stories, there's many different sides to the case, different theories, allegations of police misconduct. And You know, we may never know exactly what happened to the three victims of the story, but there's a lot to go over. So I do want to apologize if I miss something. Also, I'm going to be using the word allegedly a lot throughout the story Mm -hmm. because honestly, we may not really know what facts are true and what facts are not true. But first, I want to give a quick overview of the tragic story we are about to talk about and also a brief history of Starved Rock. So on March 14th, 1960, the bodies of three women from the Chicago suburbs were discovered in St. Louis Canyon, one of the many natural wonders at Starved Rock Park, which is near Utica, Illinois. The crime shocked Northern Illinois and led to a manhunt that caught the alleged confessed killer who spent the majority of his life in prison. 
It is one of the most shocking stories to ever occur in this otherwise peaceful region. Whoa. So brief history, Starvrock State Park is a wilderness area on the Illinois River that's centrally located in northern Illinois. It's less than 100 miles southwest of Chicago, and it's known for its steep sandstone canyons formed by glacial meltwater. Several of the canyons have waterfalls, there's miles and miles of wooded trails, and the park's wildlife includes white-tailed deer, bald eagles, and different migratory birds. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you're ever in Illinois, highly recommend you go there and go hiking. Just any part of Illinois, just, you know, swing on over to Starbrock. <laughs> it's worth it. It's really beautiful. It really is. Um, Starved Rock was named after a tragic event that is derived from an indigenous people's legend. In the 1760s, Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa tribe was attending a tribal council meeting. At this council of the Illinois and the Potawatomi, an Illinois Peoria brave stabbed Chief Pontiac. Vengeance arose in Pontiac's followers and a great battle began. The Illinois, fearing death, took refuge on a great rock. After many days, the remaining Illinois died of starvation, giving this historic park its name, Starved Rock. This may also be why this area is also considered to be extremely haunted. So oh. I actually never knew the history of where the name came from. So that is very interesting and also sad. Yeah, I actually never knew that either. And I kind of wish I had known that before my family and I stayed there, but I'm actually at the same time glad I didn't know that before my family and I stayed there. But go on, please. This is I'm already fascinated. The majority of the story comes from American Hauntings, Inc., but also from the Chicago Tribune, The Vedette, which is a local paper in LaSalle County, Justia, U.S. Law. Uh, some of it is from actual news footage from 1960 Ooh. that I found on the YouTubes Ooh. and a few other sources. All of our references are going to be listed in our show notes. In March of 1960, three close friends and neighbors from the upscale town of Riverside, Illinois, a suburb west of Chicago, headed out for a four-day holiday at Starved Rock State Park. They were respected matrons in the upper middle-class suburb. Frances Frankie Murphy, 47 years old, wife of a vice president and general counsel of the Borg Warner Corporation, had four children and like her two friends, was a dedicated community leader and an active member of Riverside's Presbyterian Church. Mildred Lindquist, who is 50, wife of a vice president of Chicago's Harris Trust and Savings Bank, had two children, and Lillian Adig, which apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, but that was the way I heard it pronounced in several of the YouTube videos that I watched. She was 50 years old and she was the wife of an Illinois Bell telephone company official and had three children. The three friends had been anxious for their outing together. Lillian, who had just spent long winter days and nights nursing her heart patient husband through a tough recuperation period, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird watching, and spending time outdoors. Employees at the park's lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded their few pieces of luggage. They registered for two rooms, dropped off their bags, and then ate lunch in the dining room. 
Afterwards, they remarked to one of the staff members that it was a beautiful day for a hike and they left carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. Just to give our listeners a visual of the lodge. So the lodge is a gorgeous, huge, expansive, uh, I think it's only two stories, but it's sprawling. It's very long and it looks like a log cabin. So picture the Great Northern from Twin Peaks and that's kind of what it reminds me of, especially the dining room area looks a lot like the interior of the Great Northern Lodge and the dining area where Cooper used to eat. And it just, it's gorgeous. I love it. It's one of my favorite places to be in Illinois. That's where my cousin had his wedding. And it looks exactly like that, but without like the wall paintings and murals. And then there's a beautiful balcony that kind of spans like the whole length of one side so you can also sit outside and look at the beautiful scenery too but Sharon I when I was even there I didn't even think about the fact that we were basically staying in the Great Northern it's insane you're totally right um yeah and we will post pictures of the lodge and Starved Rock and the canyon and actually we are planning on going hiking there to take pictures of some of the areas where this crime took place in St. Louis uh, Canyon Um, so to continue with the story, the women walked away from the lodge wearing their rubber galoshes. The path was covered with a light snow and they trudged along, pausing occasionally to take photographs of one another. Eventually, they came to a dead end of St. Louis Canyon, where steep rocky walls framed a majestic frozen waterfall. The three women were only one mile away from the lodge. Lillian snapped several color slides of the canyon. When she was finished, the group turned to leave, but they never made it back to the lodge. The first sign that something was wrong occurred that evening when George Odding tried to telephone his wife at the lodge. She had promised to call him, but when she did not, Odding placed his own call. He was told by staff on duty at the desk that his wife was not available. It was surmised that the ladies had gone out somewhere, and the staff member suggested that George's wife would probably call him in the morning. Unconcerned, George went to bed. On Tuesday morning, he called the lodge again and once more asked to speak to his wife. The employee who had answered mistakenly told the worried man that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at the time. Reassured, George ended the call. Later that night, a late winter storm hit the Illinois Valley. Unbeknownst to anyone that night in St. Louis Canyon, Several inches of snow covered up footprints, bloodstains, and other vital pieces of information around three cold and still bodies. The near-blizzard conditions continued all night long, making the roads in the park nearly impassable. George Odding telephoned the lodge again on Wednesday morning, but his wife and her friends could still not be located. At his insistence, employees entered the women's rooms and found that their beds and bags were untouched. And remember this detail because we will come back to it later. Noted. A quick check of the parking lot also showed that the Murphy station wagon had not been moved. Shocked, George realized that his wife and her friends had now been missing for more than 40 hours. As soon as George broke off the call, he telephoned his longtime friend, Virgil W. Peterson, the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. 
When Peterson learned of the news, he contacted the state police and other law enforcement agencies in the area. Within minutes, word of the missing women had reached the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Ray Utsi began organizing search parties to look for the women. He accompanied one of the groups that left immediately for the park. Bill Danley, a local newspaper reporter, was just finishing his last story for the day's edition when he got a tip about the disappearances. Grabbing a camera, he braved the snowpack roads and headed for the park. When Danley reached the park's west entrance, he noticed a boy running across an icy ravine towards the road. He drove to a small parking area and found several other youths shouting that bodies had been found on one of the trails. Danley recognized the boys as members of the nearby Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp, where he had once led an explorer post, and he pulled them aside to a nearby storage garage for some questions. When they told him of the bodies, he called the lodge where law enforcement officials had gathered and then called the newspaper to report the discovery. In a matter of minutes, the story was flashing across newswires around the country. Danley was among those who entered St. Louis Canyon and got the first look at the bodies. And here is your trigger warning. Oof. Okay. Thanks. The three mutilated women were lying side by side, partially covered with snow. They were on their backs under a small ledge and their clothing had been torn away and their legs spread open. Each of them had been viciously beaten about the head and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy twine. They were covered with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. Oh, my God. State police detectives soon arrived and began a search of the immediate area. Except for the floor of the overhang where the bodies were found, the entire canyon was covered in nearly eight inches of snow. The fine white powder had to be carefully removed using blow torches to melt the snow. Mrs. Murphy's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. His leather case was smeared with blood and its strap was broken. They also found the women's bloody binoculars. A short distance away, LaSalle County's state's attorney, Harland Warren, stumbled across a frozen tree limb that was streaked with blood. The snow beneath it was covered with blood and it was realized that this was likely the murder weapon. A trail of blood also led them to speculate that the women had been killed deeper in the canyon and then their bodies had been dragged and positioned under the rock ledge. The bodies remained in place for hours until pathologists and state crime lab officials could arrive. The vigil lasted long into the night, aided by lanterns and flashlights. The victims were removed on cloth stretchers. The bodies were taken to the Hall's funeral home in Ottawa, where they were examined and autopsied. It appeared that some of the women may have been sexually assaulted, but due to the cold, snowy conditions, the limitations of medical techniques at the time, they failed to find any evidence of rape. The doctors were able to determine the time of death, placing it shortly after they had enjoyed lunch at the lodge. No motive was suggested for the murders, but robbery was dismissed as the women had left their money and jewelry behind in their rooms when they went for their afternoon hike, and also their camera and binoculars were left at the crime scene. The investigation went nowhere almost from the start. There were few clues to follow, and theories began to grow wilder and wilder. 
Things were further confused by all of those who wanted to maintain jurisdiction in the case. State's attorney Warren was technically in charge, but the state police maintained their authority in the case because the murders were committed on park property. The two law enforcement camps clashed, but Warren was in a bind. He was forced to deal with the state authorities because the officials in LaSalle County simply had no experience dealing with crimes of this manner. As the investigation slowly moved forward, fear was gripping the region. Doors that were never locked before were now firmly secured. Hardware stores experienced a run on new deadbolts, and sporting goods stores saw guns vanish from their cases at an alarming rate. The number of overnight guests at the Star Rock Lodge dropped off to almost nothing, not unsurprisingly. (laughs) Uh, Newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation and elevated the level of panic in the area. As is usually the case when a murder is not found right away. And so, thus continued newspaper scrutiny of the case which kept pressure on police officials to make progress, especially at Harland Warren's county office. He had a hard time coping with the pressure, especially during an election year. Money was becoming a problem as well, since the investigation budget was soaring, and throughout 1960, he was under ever-increasing pressure to solve the murders. Frustrated, he felt that he had taken enough criticism for the investigation, and he asked himself what the killer had left behind at the scene of the crime that he could use to help push the case forward to find a suspect. And the obvious answer for that was the twine that was used to bind two of the victims. So using his own money, Warren purchased a microscope and began intently conducting a study of the twine. Research revealed that there were two kinds of twine used, a 20-ply cord, and a 12-ply one. With this information in hand, he sought out help to follow the lead. Instead of choosing someone from his staff, he handpicked two county detectives who would report to him alone. The two men were deputies Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess. The two men chose the most logical place to start the search for the source of the twine, which was Starved Rock Lodge. In September 1960, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen, and within minutes, and without much difficulty, Warren had found both kinds of twine that were used in the murder. Whoa. They were each used for wrapping food, and Dummett and Hess, using lodge purchasing records, soon tracked down the twine's manufacturer. The twine used to bind the murder victims had been taken without question, from the supply at the lodge's kitchen, just as Warren had always suspected the killer either worked at or had access to the park's lodge. Whoa. So, all right. I have a little question here. Okay. Um, So I couldn't find the answer to this, but it said that Warren did his own investigation into the twine. Obviously, we now have forensic experts that do this sort of research right. and are able to tell the difference between certain kinds of twine that may look similar <gasps> but aren't necessarily identical. Okay. So I just want to know how 
sure were they that this was the actual twine i mean that's what i thought you were showing me like two different types of twine even if i had a microscope i don't know if i could tell the difference you know what i wrote down on my notebook is i wrote down laura palmer really big because she has two (laughs) types of twine right but that's cooper and he's fictional for one and second you know (laughs) above human so (laughs) i that's a really good question because Maybe they looked different or felt different, maybe? I don't I, I don't know. I'm not a twine expert, but that's a very good question. Well, I am a twine expert. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that, I think that uh, you know, different twine is made in different ways. And, you know, if it looks identical under the microscope, then they probably felt. But you're right. Like, back in 1960, uh, you know, who, who knows? And how much experience did Warren have using microscopes or being able to tell the difference. I mean, in nursing school, when we had anatomy and physiology, I mean, we had to do um, identification of different cells. I mean, that was so hard, just trying to identify like different cells. It's, It's not as easy as it sounds, I don't think. And if he's not an expert or doesn't have experience at it, it could very easily be mistaken for the wrong twine, you know, which would put the wrong suspects under the microscope of the, the investigation. So I'm just saying, okay, uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. No, I get it. This I, was definitely a question that I had reading. This was like, Hmm, did he, they actually have any sort of an expert look at the twine or was it just him? Well, so here's the only other thing that I will say to, again, also playing devil's advocate because I am not a twine expert. unlike Spencer, but um, <laughs> I, I will say, cause I went to college like in a northern western town of Illinois, almost to Iowa. And there's so much farming in those rural areas. And like out by where Starved Rock is, it's pretty rural. It could just be that that's a thing that they kind of can pick up on. I don't know. I was just going to throw that out there that it might be more common because that whole area is more rural, that it might be something that they do run into. So Mindy's saying that the rural people know their twine real good. (laughs) I Um, I mean, uh, city folk don't know twine from shit, but like, you know. That's very true. (laughs) I think we should do our own experiment, actually. I think we should get a microscope and just get a couple different kinds of twine and see, like, do they look identical and I don't know, man. I've watched enough forensic files to know that <laughs> identifying fibers is it's it's a science. It's, it's it not, is yeah. uh, s- something that I think a, a layman can do. And I, I see your point. I, I just wonder if it might be something that is more of a rural commonplace. They start learning about twine in kindergarten. I mean, <laughs> we don't learn about it until college. Us city kids, we don't, yeah, we don't learn about twine until college, if well, then even. We don't um, even have any use for twine. What are you talking about? I mean, so, but basically, this discovery of the twine being from the kitchen of the Starved Rock Lodge, huge, right? Led, led to them um, yeah. now looking at all the lodge employees, and they were all given polygraph tests, and they had passed. So Warren now had to wonder if the polygraph tests were accurate. And he boldly decided that it was time to run some of his own tests. Once again, like, who is this guy? Um, Is he like Sherlock Holmes? Um, But (laughs) 
He hired a specialist from a prominent Chicago firm. Warren recalled all the employees who had worked during the week of the murder, and one by one, they came to a small cabin located near the lodge and again submitted to a polygraph. Uh, what? No, a I polygraph. Mean, it's a it's a no, lie detector test. I know, no, I know. <laughs> I'm like, wait, to a small cabin out by the woods? What? Really? There's a bunch of cabins that you can rent and stay at. If you don't want to stay like in the lodge, there's a bunch of small cabins. They're not are- going to have them come to like the local sheriff's department or something. They're just oh. going to go to like some cabin. Sure. Okay. All right. It's a cabin at the lot. Anyways. All right. So one by one, they all came to a small cabin located near the lodge and again submitted to another round of polygraph tests. The first dozen or so were quickly cleared and Warren and the deputies wondered if they might be wasting their time. Then Bill Dummett brought in a former dishwasher named Chester Otto Weger. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing uh, Weger's last name wrong, but once again, that was how they pronounced it in most of the YouTube videos that I watched. So I'm, I'm going with that. Did you say most of the two videos you watched? Most of the YouTube videos that oh. I watched. <laughs> Sorry. So after they brought in Chester Otto Weger, everything changed. When Weger's polygraph test was completed, Warren noticed that the examiner's face had gone pale. Alle- allegedly. <laughs> I forgot to put allegedly in here. Um, but as soon as Weger left the cabin... Allegedly, the technician turned to Warren and the two deputies and quietly stated, that's your man. Weger was 21 years old. He was a slight small man with a wife and two children. He had worked at the park until that summer when he resigned to go into business with his father as a house painter. Investigators had focused on Weger early on after Lodge employees reported seeing scratches on his face around the time of the murders. But he passed several lie detector tests and claimed that the scratches were from shaving. Warren intensified the investigation of the man and strangely, Weger happily cooperated with him. Or maybe not strangely, if he was truly innocent, um, he surrendered a piece of buckskin jacket that he owned so that some suspicious dark stains on it could be examined. It later turned out to be human blood, but back in 1960, it could not be typed and matched to a specific victim. Warren had also asked Weger to submit to further polygraph tests, and again, Weger agreed He was given an entire series of tests, and he had failed them all. Once the jacket was determined to be stained with human blood, uh, also remember this detail about the jacket as well, because we will come back to that. Noting it. Uh, Warren put the former dishwasher under constant surveillance by the state police, and Warren, along with Dummett and Hess, began checking into Uyghur's past and also into similar crimes in the area, which might have escalated into murder. Dummett came across a reported rape and robbery that took place in 1959 in Matheson State Park, which is about a mile away from Starved Rock State Park. With Warren's approval, he approached the young female victim with a stack of mugshots. As she slowly sorted through them, she began to scream as she came across the face of Chester Weger. She and her boyfriend were bound with the same type of twine that was used to tie the two murdered women just eight months later. Don't know how they know that, unless they 
kept the twine for some reason, which is possible. Um, but also, again, just little questions that I had throughout reading the story that I didn't really get clear answers to. Okay. With this positive identification, Warren could have easily ordered Uyghur arrested, but he was forced to wait. A new problem had reared its ugly head. With all of the time and energy involved in the investigation, Warren had worked very little on his campaign for re-election. If he booked Uyghur on rape and murder charges before the election, defense attorneys would simply say that he had done so as a stunt to retain his job. He left Uyghur under surveillance, not wanting to jeopardize the case against him with the election. Confident of his record of cleaning gambling and prostitution out of LaSalle County during his eight years in office, Warren let his past actions speak for themselves. Unfortunately, his opponent left the bungling of the Starved Rock murder case to speak for him, and out of the 60,000 votes that were cast in the election, Warren lost by nearly 3,500 votes. Whoa, damn. It was close. Burn. Sorry. Uh, So disappointed by the election results, Warren still had time in office to pursue the case against Uyghur. Although his evidence was not as strong as he would have liked, he obtained an arrest warrant against Uyghur for the 1959 rape and ordered Hess and Dummett to pick him up. He believed that when he saw all of the evidence mounted against him, Uyghur would confess to the crime and to the Starved Rock murders. Warren made careful plans with his two deputies about how to interrogate Uyghur before confronting him with murder charges. A short time later, Hess and Dummett arrived at the young man's apartment and explained that they had some more questions for him. They made no mention of the arrest warrants that were waiting at the courthouse, and once they had him in custody, the officers began to question him about the rape and also began to press him about the murders. They kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight, and then finally, weary of questions and nearly exhausted, Uyghur stopped in mid-sentence and asked to see his family. A police car was dispatched to his parents' home in Oglesby, and his mother and father were brought to the courthouse. Dummett and Hess gave them a few minutes alone with their son. In his official statement, which was taken the next day, Deputy Hess stated, When Bill stepped out of the back room in the state's attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Weger to the door so they can go home, I could see that something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester! Why don't you tell me about it? There are just the two of us here. Tell me about it. He said, all right, I did it. Whoa. Minutes later, the confession was transcribed and signed by Uyghur. Uyghur described how eight months earlier, he had bludgeoned the three women with a frozen tree branch during a botched robbery attempt after attacking the women during a daytime hike. Uyghur said he got scared and tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought and he hit them. The pocketbook that Uyghur claimed that he tried to take was actually Mrs. Murphy's camera or binoculars. That wasn't really clear. Mm. During the confession, when he was asked why he had dragged the bodies under the overhang in the St. Louis Canyon, Uyghur said that he had spotted a small airplane flying low over the park. Uyghur said that he was afraid it was a state police plane, so he moved the bodies so they could not be seen from above. 
Prosecutors said Uyghur knew things only the killer could have known, such as the fact that a red and white airplane flew over the canyon the day of the murders. Detectives later confirmed that detail by checking the flight logs at a local airport. Hmm. Uyghur confessed several more times to the murders over the next few days and even reenacted the killings for a crowd of policemen and reporters at the canyon. Then, suddenly... After his first meeting with his court-appointed attorney, Uyghur changed his story and stated that he was innocent of all charges. Uyghur claimed that Dummett and Hess had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun and beating (gasps) him up. He had lied in his confession but had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway. Uyghur also said that Dummett had fed him the information about the airplane, Uyghur claimed to be in Oldsby at the time of the killings. All right. So I just want to talk about this for a little bit. Okay. Um, so Uyghur's report was that the cops threatened him to sign a confession. And that was allegedly corroborated by court reporter Josephine Thompson, who said that the confession was already typed up and ready to go when Chester was arrested. Wow. And it's also alleged that when they took Uyghur to St. Louis Canyon for the crime scene reenactment, Uyghur thought that he was just going there to identify some shoe prints left in the canyon and not to reenact the crime scene. Uh, But to counteract Uyghur's allegations of a forced confession, allegedly... When he was being interrogated, his mother, father, wife, a medical doctor, a photographer, and other people were also in and out of the room at some point during the entire interrogation. So it seems unlikely that if the cops were strong arming him into signing a confession, that they would have invited about 14 people in total into the interrogation room. Hmm. So, you know, I... Once again, I'm reading both sides of the story because right. this is everything I came across in my research and wanted to present both sides of the story. I'm not picking a side right now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, we have a lot more information to go through, but I, I just want to be fair to both sides. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's right. I don't. And also keep in mind, most of these uh, articles that I read, these were written in the 60s. right. You know, are people really fact checking each other? Are things being recorded? Uh, Just, you know, is there auditory recordings? Is it all verbal? Is it hearsay? I don't know. Regarding his family, I mean, in those days when the police told you something, that was truth. You know, people believe that to be true. So for all we know, the police could have said to his family, we have X, Y, and Z evidence. And like, so that could be why they would bring his family in and they wouldn't react in any weird way. Or, you know what I mean? Like, we, yeah, it's a whole different world. <laughs> yes, this is almost way literally. We, you know, way before uh, all these coerced confessions have been brought to light and how <laughs> so many people admit to crimes that they did not con- commit. You know, now there's documentaries on on this stuff um and people trusted the police like if the police said that this was true that was at that time something that people would do they would trust the police so it yeah anyway anyways so Uyghur was brought to trial jury selection took almost two weeks and the trial began on january 20th 1961 
The new state's attorney, Robert E. Richardson, was in charge of the prosecution and was assisted by Anthony Recuglia. Richardson and Recuglia decided to file charges against Uyghur for only one of the three murders. The reason being was because in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against Uyghur for the other killings. And they sought the death penalty in the case. Huh. So on March 4th, almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Chester Weger. And on the day of his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. After Judge Hoffman dismissed the jurors, reporters asked them if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant that Weger would be eligible for parole in just a few years, and most of the jurors were shocked. They had no idea. Some of them even said that if they had known that Uyghur was not really being sent away for the rest of his life, that they would have voted for the electric chair. So Uyghur's life was essentially saved by a lack of knowledge of Illinois law and also failure on the prosecutor's part for properly instructing the jury. Whoa. So good, good for Uyghur, though. Well, yeah, but that, holy shit. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) Uh, However, in the minds of some people, there are questions about the case that have remained unanswered. I've asked several of these questions, and now we're going to get into (laughs) a lot more of them. Awesome. Uh, So many people feel that the evidence that was used to convict Uyghur would not stand up in court today. His prosecution largely turned out to be based on his confession, which predated Miranda warnings that are required today. (gasps) No. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That started, I believe, in 1966. Holy Um, shit. So there were other questions about how a small, slight man like Uyghur could have overpowered three women and then move their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under the rock overhang. And in some of the videos that I saw, I mean, it's pretty uh, difficult to get the bodies into the area where they were found because um, it's it's slippery rock. I mean, I've hiked in this area before, and if it's wet or icy especially, it's very slippery, and you kind of have to get the bodies, I think, up a little slope and onto like this ledge of the canyon. Um, It's one of the reasons I want to go hiking over there just to kind of see how this area actually is and if it even would have been possible for him to do that. Well, and don't forget that when like dead people are dead weight, literally. So it's even harder. Yes. And he would have to have moved three bodies um, through difficult conditions on his own without being seen by any other hikers you know it's possible i'm sure but yeah yeah it would be hard there's also the question of his jacket remember i said remember this thank you i have it written down (laughs) so chester's suede jacket that he supposedly was wearing during the murders uh well authorities only found a tiny speck of blood on it and it was so small that they couldn't determine if it was human or animal. Uh, Earlier, it did say it was human blood. Another article I found said they couldn't determine it. So Mm. how do you bludgeon three people to death and not have blood splatter all over you? I mean, theoretically, the jacket should have been covered in blood. 100%. Yep. There were also allegedly 
eight bloody fingerprints. Drink every time I say allegedly. I should have said this at the beginning. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there are also allegedly eight bloody fingerprints left by the killer or killers on the clothing of the, <gasps> of the three women. However, these prints were not a match for Chester Weger, and the information was also not presented at the trial. Oh, my God. I also found some information on the website for Hale and Monaco Law Firm, which focuses on civil rights and personal injury litigation. They have an entire page about the Star of Rock murders <gasps> on their website because Chester Weger's attorney is Andy Hale. What? Of Hale and Monica Law Firm. So they state on their site, there are numerous factors that cast doubt on Chester's confession and support his case of innocence. At the outset, there is no physical evidence linking Chester to this gruesome crime scene and no witnesses place him at the scene of the crime. However, there is physical evidence that support Chester's exoneration. A blonde hair found on the finger of Francis Murphy's glove was analyzed by the Eastman Kodak Company and found to be dissimilar to hair samples taken from Chester. Black hairs were also found in the palm of Lillian Odding. So I I don't know if they mean like literally like in her, her grip, like she pulled hair off of an attacker's head. Um, they didn't really go into detail. That's what I'm picturing. Um, right. I mean, if she's dead and they found them while she was dead, yeah, I would imagine. Although numerous hairs and fibers were collected and analyzed, no hair or fiber evidence was introduced at Chester's trial. And the fact that both blonde and black hairs were recovered on the victims strongly suggests the presence of two killers, uh, which would also, you know, that comes back to what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, it also seems unlikely that, you know, five foot eight Chester Weger would be able to overpower and restrain all three women by himself. Totally. They also said on their site that Chester's claims that his confession was involuntary and coerced is supported by the fact that Sheriff's Deputy Dummett threatened Chester Weger with the electric <gasps> chair if he did not confess. The threat of death is one of the leading factors contributing to false confessions. Moreover, Chester's confession is implausible on its face. Chester claims that his motive was robbery, yet when the bodies were found, the women still possessed their rings and jewelry, which this contradicts what I read earlier in that other report that they left their money and jewelry in their room. In, in the room, yeah. Yeah. Um, It also defies common sense that one of the women would have started the altercation by attacking Chester, as stated in his confession. Whoa. So, once again, (laughs) this is why the word of the day is allegedly. Uh Drink. Okay. And if all this wasn't weird enough, Mindy. Okay. Listen to this. So there's others who believe in Uyghur's innocence because of a deathbed confession that allegedly <laughs> take a drinking drink, uh, allegedly occurred in 1982 or possibly 83. But a Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in 2006. So uh, uh, how many years later? I'm sorry. Whoa, a lot. Uh, yeah. In 2006, this this was not reported until then, um, but this recounted the confession 
or the alleged confession, it was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Star of Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner, who is now deceased, were called to rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to, quote, clear her conscience. The affidavit stated, The woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she had been with her friends in a state park where something happened. What? The woman then told Gibson that she was at a park in Utica where things, quote, got out of hand, end quote. Multiple victims were killed and, quote, they dragged the bodies, end quote. What? I know. <laughs> I know. It's it, And there's even more beyond this that will definitely be making you say what um but yeah so gibson said that the woman's daughter then cut the interview short shouting that their mother was out of her mind and ordering the police from the room okay very suspicious in the affidavit gibson did not provide the exact date of the interview or the woman's name but said he passed the information along to a detective the affidavit did not address whether or not there was any follow-up or why the confession was not presented until 2006. Whoa. When Chester Weger went to prison for the infamous Starve Rock murders, he was a 22-year-old young man with two small children and a wife. Oof. On the morning of Friday, February 20th, 2020, he emerged from the prison gates after finally being paroled. What? He is now a balding grandfather with dentures and a list of ailments that include asthma and rheumatoid arthritis, and he still maintains his innocence. Uyghur said, quote, they ruined my life. They locked me up for 60 years for something I've never done. And wow. Wow. Okay. Prior to his release, Uyghur was evaluated under the state's Sexually Violent Persons Commitment Act. The law allows the state to hold people indefinitely in a secured facility in the custody of the Illinois Department of Human Services for sex offender treatment if an evaluation deems that necessary. Granddaughters of the slain women have spoken out publicly against Uyghur's release, as has the LaSalle County State's attorney. But Uyghur supporters have insisted that he poses no threat to public safety and experts who conducted Uyghur's evaluation concluded that Uyghur did not meet the legal criteria for the law to apply. Uyghur is currently living at St. Leonard's Ministries in Chicago. A condition of his parole is that he cannot live in LaSalle County, where all of his family currently resides. Wow. On September 21st, 2020, the Northwest Herald reported that Uyghur wanted a crime lab to take a look at some evidence seized and stored, but a judge said no. But the judge also gave LaSalle County prosecutors a homework assignment, tracking down evidence seized from the Chester Uyghur investigation that is unaccounted for. Among the items identified in a lengthy, recently unearthed document include scrapings taken from the fingernails <gasps> of the three murder victims. Whoa. The judge said that Uyghur should not get his hopes up, however, that prosecutors will find any new evidence in the murder investigation. Uyghur attorney Celeste Stack 
argued in open court while the evidence wasn't stored and secured properly by contemporary standards, it may be possible for a crime lab to apply new technologies and run DNA tests that could exclude Uyghur as the killer. Stack said, quote, we do want to look at the evidence that's been contaminated and see if the lab could work with it, end quote. A lawyer on Uyghur's behalf appeared in front of a LaSalle County judge, Michael Jans, Monday, January 11th, 2021, who put off the motion to reconsider a hearing until May 3rd. A special prosecutor from Will County was appointed to be part of Uyghur's case. So because we are recording this episode prior to May 3rd, we don't have any new information right now, but if there are any developments in the case, we are definitely going to update you in a future episode. All right. So questions, Mindy. Yes. Why is the state of Illinois refusing to test the DNA? I have several reasons that I can think of. Uh, The main one being is that they don't want to risk revealing that they may have imprisoned the wrong person for the past 60 years. I would have Um, to agree. Uh. (laughs) Also, If you were actually guilty of committing these murders, why would you be pushing so hard and have lawyers fighting for you to test DNA evidence? Right. And fuck the politics of the story. The state just needs to do what is right. If the DNA exonerates Uyghur, then make it right with him and his family. And also, you have to consider the victim's families, too, because they're going to be pissed If they find out that the state convicted the wrong man and that their mother's killer went free for the last 60 years. A hundred percent. Also, in Illinois, there is no statute of limitations on first degree murder. So if the killer is still out there and alive and we can find them by using DNA evidence, lock them up like GSK. Right. You know, no, I was thinking the same thing to be like put in prison for especially for a triple homicide and then if Uyghur if Uyghur turns out to be guilty then let's prove once and for all so that everyone can move on with their lives and maybe there also was more than one person involved after all and I'm you know there is a possibility that it could have been Uyghur and someone else um and that's just simply I'm you know once again devil's advocate here looking at all possibilities. Uh, And also, just because he's maybe innocent of these murders, there's still that case in Matheson State Park with the rape and uh, kidnapping of the couple. And I couldn't really find uh, a ton of evidence on whether or not he was the actual person who did that. I mean, they said that they put down mugshots and that the woman identified him. So, you know, he could have done that. Doesn't mean he's like a great human being, but he may not be guilty of murder. And this is what we're talking about is this case here. The other case, that's that's a whole separate issue. And I don't have enough facts uh, surrounding that case to make any uh, definitive conclusions on that. Right. There's reasonable doubt is what we're saying for sure. There's a ton of reasonable doubt, yes, which is why uh, his attorneys and his supporters are saying, like, there's no way he would have been convicted if this trial was held today. Um, Some other theories 
There are theories that the mafia could be involved or possibly the husbands. Um, and this is simply, I think this is mostly speculation. I'm not going to really get into all that because it's complicated. I think a lot of it has to do with because the husbands, some of their businesses and they're more prominently known in the community and maybe because of their financial uh, status and I don't really know. But also, there are family members of the women that are still alive today, and we don't need to go into details on that. Sure. Because, you know, this is their own family members that we're talking about, possibly being involved in these horrible murders. Um, I'm just mentioning it briefly because I did come across this in uh, some articles and wanted to throw other theories out there. I personally don't believe that the husbands or the mafia was involved in this at all. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, another theory, though, that I think deserves more attention is this one. And for some reason, I could not find a ton of details on this. But I would really like to know how much this story was looked into back in the day and if there's any truth to it at all. So Nicholas Spiros he ran the restaurant at the Starred Rock Lodge back in 1960, had a son, George Spiros. George was sent to live with family members in Greece immediately after the murders occurred. And he returned to LaSalle County a few years later. A decade or so after the murders took place, George had agreed to travel to Chicago to meet with the FBI for questioning because they were re-examining the case. The FBI did not believe the murders were solved with the conviction of Chester Weger, and D.A. Harland Warren had refused the FBI's help with the investigation back in 1960. But George Spiros suddenly committed suicide and never made it to Chicago to meet with the FBI for questioning, and many locals do not believe that he killed himself, but rather he was silenced. So... Was George directly involved with the murders or did he know who was involved and that this was why he was sent to Greece until Chester's trial was over? Maybe he could have been an alibi for Chester and Chester was a scapegoat. Also, it was said that George lived in a house in the park with his father and they own a couple of large dogs and supposedly there were dog and possibly possum hairs found on the victims. I don't know if this was the black hairs that were found on the one victim's body or anyways, I want to know why this story was not covered more if there's any truth to it at all. Right, 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 right. All right. And (laughs) finally... If all this wasn't strange enough. It's not. <laughs> oh, good. Well, because we're going to get even stranger here. <laughs> Another chilling story possibly linked to this case is the murders of the Winders family. Okay. So less than 24 hours after the three women were found murdered in Starved Rock, the entire Winders family of five were shot to death execution style in their nearby Seneca home. Seneca approximately 25 miles away from Starved Rock. So who arrives on the scene to declare that this was a murder-suicide? Oh, my God. None other than County Deputy Bill Dummett, 
who credits himself with solving the Star of Rock murders with the conviction of Chester Weger. It is said that the story of the Winders family was buried in the papers. It also seemed odd that there were two multiple murder cases in the normally peaceful rural mm. LaSalle County area within the same week. Mm-hmm. And authorities called it a murder-suicide. First, they said that the husband killed the entire family before turning the gun on himself. Then they said it was the wife that killed the husband and three kids before killing herself. And they did find powder burns on her hands, but that also doesn't mean that someone didn't force the gun in her hand after the fact to make it look like a murder-suicide. And is it possible that the family may have known something about the murders of the three women at Starved Rock? Were they possibly hiking in Starved Rock that day and maybe they saw something? Were they just collateral damage? Or is it just another unfortunate set of murders? And could it be an actual murder-suicide? Wow. I don't know. Wow. Food for thought, for sure. I kind of don't really want to go back to Starved Rock. I'll be honest. I know. I was after I researched this story. I was like, yeah, I'm really glad that I did not <laughs> know this story before I went to Star Rock all the time because I used to go hiking there by myself oh, constantly, yeah. and I would go hiking in Matheson State Park by myself too. And I think I would have been too scared to go hiking by myself in either of those areas because there was a lot of times where I mean I was like alone, you know, because oh. I would go during the daytime, during the week, yeah. um, a lot when there wasn't a lot of people around. And yeah, that would have been just, I think, way too eerie to be doing that by myself. Oh my God, totally. So I have just uh, a smattering of random information about the case. Um, there were some other questions that I had that I was like, all right, I, I need to search for answers for these. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to know... The film that was found at the crime scene, what photographs were taken with the victim's camera before yes, the murders? Thank was you. Was there any evidence on that? So um, they did develop the film, and there is one triple exposure picture that was taken by one of the women that was found on the roll of film. And there is what appears to show a dim outline of a man But State Police Superintendent William Morris said that he does not believe that that was a man in the picture. Mm. I saw the photo. It was online. I mean, oh, Spencer pulled it up right now. Let me see it. Ooh, we'll have to post it to our Patreon. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely post this picture. I mean, I'm not really sure what they're seeing. It's it's sketchy. (laughs) <laughs> at best. Um, that was a question I had, though. So thank you for covering that, because I was wondering what they got. Yeah, that was the only photo that was questionable. I think the rest of it was just pictures of them hiking along the trail. OK. Um, and it was a manually loading camera. Um, so it's possible that they loaded the film wrong and some of the, the frames overlapped. So that could explain that. Um, People also say that this was a spontaneous crime since there was no gun or knife used in the murders. And the murder weapon appears to be a tree branch. So it seems like it was more of a crime of opportunity. Hmm. But then my question is, why did the killer have rope with them? Right. What's with the twine? And yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Unless for some reason... 
they killed the women and then went back to the lodge and got the twine. But then why would you tie them up if they were already dead? So that seemed a little suspicious. It didn't seem like a crime of opportunity if if they had twine on them, unless, I don't know, they had the twine for some other reason. But I've right like, done a lot of hiking in my life and I've never brought twine with me. So <laughs> Twine is one of the most useful things that you can have on you. I would not be surprised. I'm being sort of joking, sort of serious. I would not be surprised if somebody actually had twine on them. I mean, possibly, but also because it's a state park. Yeah. I don't think hunting or fishing is allowed. So well, and the exact twine that's found in the kitchen, like that's weird. If it's the exact right, twine. which which that guy George, his dad worked in the kitchen, and you know maybe who knows. But then also from a Chicago Tribune article from March twenty fourth, nineteen sixty. Okay, there's a report from the state police crime lab that says that the tree branch that was thought to be the murder weapon used to bludgeon the women was so rotted in some areas that it would have cracked if it was used to beat the women. And the state lab does not think that this was the murder weapon, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess to play devil's advocate here, if the branch was frozen, like as Chester Weger described it, if it was covered in ice, it could have been solid enough to beat the women. It would have to be really, really frozen, I think. I I mean, true, but... I mean, like, frozen that they probably wouldn't have gone hiking in that weather, I would imagine. But that's just me. I mean, I don't know. I've... Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure that I buy that, but okay. Okay. It's... But if that wasn't the murder weapon, then what was the murder weapon? No, I know. Right. Exactly. Um... And then also from the same Tribune article, uh, you remember way back earlier in the episode when I talked about the women's hotel room? Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, we're finally getting to that. So this is from the same Tribune article. A maid told authorities that when she entered the rooms on March 15th, so the day after the women registered, she found two damp towels on the bathroom floor, oh. a ring of greasy dirt in the bathtub and wet soap on the soap container. And one of the keys to the women's room, room 110, was never found. Mm. So could the killer have taken the key and cleaned up after the murders? And why wasn't this talked about more? Because I literally only saw this mentioned in one article. Because this happened in 1960? <sighs> This should have been talked about much more because if the killer went to clean up, there would have been fingerprints. There would have been some sort of evidence. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And that's the thing is that I'm wondering, like, even with the women, how they were found, I feel like there should have been some sort of evidence or fingerprints or something. Well, as we said, there was possibly eight fingerprints, but none of it was brought up in court. Oh, Jesus. And none of them matched Chester Uyghurs. So I'm just saying this is a huge development in the case. If this is true, this should have been in court. This should have been talked about more in the press, especially since the conflicting um, article that I read said that it looked like the room hadn't been touched. Like they dropped their luggage off and they laughed. Yeah, but- I wrote that down even. That this is amazing. Sharon, this is a lot of work. Thank you for <sighs> yeah, telling this story. I- <laughs> my God. Uh, oh my God. I kind of, I like, I enjoyed staying at Starved Rock with my family, but now I don't know that I want to go back. <laughs> well, it's, you know, 
this was a long time ago. It's it's an absolutely gorgeous place. It's what one of my favorite places in Illinois to go. And I, I part of me is kind of sad that I still don't live out in that area because it was really nice to be able to go somewhere so beautiful, like whenever I wanted to to go hiking. Yeah. Um, and it is so the great northern. Like it's the closest oh. you can get. I mean, it was just lo- I mean, it was exactly like you had picture Cooper's room. It was kind of crazy. Thinking back, I'm realizing that. Like I didn't think about it at the time, but uh it's hard to think that something so awful would happen somewhere so beautiful, really. Happens all the time. I feel like right? some of the most beautiful places have some of the most horrific crimes. So that is the Starved Rock Murders, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you for doing all that research. That was an aw- I don't want to say an awesome story, but it was awesome in like the awe-inspiring meaning of the word. Like, well, the thing I really like about this case, like once I started doing the research, because I was had no idea that it was still ongoing to this day. I was like, oh my God, there is a possibility that we could completely exonerate this person from these horrific crimes. And like, how often do we do stories on our show or like any podcast or, you know, true crime documentary or whatever, where there is like new developments almost happening in real time. Part of me is kind of like, let's contact him and talk to him and get his side of the story. Which we'll, we'll, we will look into. And we will actually, we will totally report on any future developments should they happen. I don't know that they will, but we'll see. Like, yeah, that's incredible. And it, it seems so weird when you say 1960. I don't feel like it was so long ago, but like it kind of was. So pardon me. Has the same questions that you do, but I keep going, well, it was 1960, but I'm like, well, come on. They couldn't have found this evidence or this evidence, but they really couldn't have. Without- and also, I mean, it, the condition of the body is because of the water, yeah. like yeah. And the snow and the cold. Uh. And yeah, it's ugh. anyways, we will keep you updated Absolutely. on any new developments. Um, thank you all for listening to us. I know this was a lot to take in. <laughs> Um, so if you made it to the end, yay! And if you're s- still standing after drinking every time I said allegedly, yay! <laughs> um, as always, you can write to us at whorestalkwhore at gmail.com with anything you want to share with us. Uh, if you have any details into this story, uh, if you want to, you know, uh, let us in on some details that I did not cover, that I was not able to find anywhere. Let us know. Please write to us uh, if any of the family members of any of the families out there um, have anything they want to add. And I, I really hope that I did justice to both sides. And I, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm not pointing fingers. I, re- I really want to know what new evidence they're able to find, if any, and if they're able to get uh, any sort of DNA from the evidence that is still around from 61 years ago. Right. Um, But I I do believe that whoever was guilty should be punished for it. And if someone was punished unjustly, I believe they have all the right in the world to try and be exonerated and have the state apologize and owe up to what they did you know admit that they were wrong so anyways i hope we didn't offend anyone with this story um 
But yes, it, please write to us. Uh, also, if you have any ghost stories, any other true crime stories, creepy stories, whatever you would like us to read on our show. Uh, Mindy, your time to actually talk now. <laughs> <laughs> Just to like expand on what Sharon was saying. I mean, dead or alive, the right people should be acknowledged. The wrong people should be acknowledged. So yes, any if some odd way you have some info on this crime please email us or the authorities. But on a lighter note, um, just listening to this, please do subscribe to us um, on your podcast platform of choice. And please do rate and review us because it does help us get more exposure. And if you are able these days, I know things are tough, but please do join our Patreon and you can where you can get early access to episodes, the exclusive posts, and maybe get some cool shit sent to you via snail mail, the lost art of snail mail. Please be kind to each other out there. Please stay safe. Keep each other safe. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, oh my god.